Hi, everybody. I'm Phil Town. And I'm Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about investing mindfully. Mindful investing. Rule one style. How on earth to understand this stuff. (laughs) That's what we're talking about. How you figure out what in the world should I do when everybody's telling me just diversify, (laughs) put your money in a, you know, index fund, don't, you know, don't ever try to do this yourself, whatever you do. And we have a different point of view, dramatically different, that we're studying here on this blog. And it starts with realizing... It's a podcast. I'm sorry, the blog thing isn't what it is. The podcast is what it is. (laughs) And this is a huge step up in technology for me to go to a podcast. But here's the thing that's cool, is that if you wanted to learn how to do something well, like let's say snowboard or ski or surf or write or whatever, right? You would go to people who are really good at it and you would copy them and you'd say, oh, what are the, who's, who's the best? Well, the best investors in the world, the, the very best one obviously is Warren Buffett and right next to him is his partner, Charlie Munger. And right there with him are guys like Manesh Prabhai and David Einhorn and many more people who use these basic techniques that Buffett and his mentor, Ben Graham, pioneered and which have been effective at, at producing audited public rates of return. Like mm-hmm. you can prove it for 50, 60 years of 20% plus, which is not supposed to happen. Yeah, but that's it does. insane. Yeah, crazy numbers. Like Buffett, if you'd put $10,000 with Buffett in 1960, you'd have $40 million today. If you put 10,000. Jeez, 000, is that true? Yeah. 10,000 in the oh stock market, you'd have like gosh. you'd have like 500,000 if you put the money in the stock market. There's got to be some people who did that. There are. And here's a classic story. There are people whose door Buffett knocked on and said, hey, would you let me have $10,000 to invest for you, who did it and made $40 million. And there are those who said no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, oh, all, there's always Oh, the pain no. in I those mean, how, families. You would have said no. Because he didn't have the track record, and your whole thing is the track record. Would I have said no to a young guy with? He did have a little track. You record. would have sat here on this podcast and told a story about how some guy showed up with no track record <laughs> and tried to get you to invest, and you would never do that because it's not the rule one style. You know what? Though he was, if he had come in and said, "Here's how I'm doing it. I'm buying really good businesses, and I'm buying them when they're on sale." I would have been really interested right there because you can't put your money with fund managers who do that. I don't know if you knew this. They all, the the 99.9% of the people you can put money with do not do that. They just buy wonderful companies, or at least they try to. But they don't worry about whether they're on sale or not. And that little difference there is the difference between having $500,000 after 40 years and having $40 million. Is that because they're focusing on day trading or more more quick trading rather than a longer-term investment? Well, they say they're longer-term investors. And I'm talking about the guys who are running the biggest mutual funds in the world. They say they're longer-term investors. But the truth is that about the average length of time a fund manager with a typical mutual fund holds a stock is like two or three months. So these guys aren't long-term investors per se. What they are is momentum investors. They want to buy something and have it go up right away. Mm-hmm. Warren Buffett mm-hmm. buys stuff and hopes it goes down right away <laughs> so he can buy some more. So these guys are trying to avoid those things which are going to go down right away. And if you do that, you either got to be able to call it right at the bottom perfectly or you're never buying stuff on sale. 
And in fact, there's a whole theory in the market. Uh, we'll, we'll get into this in, in another podcast, but there's an entire theory in the market that says you can't buy anything on sale. Wait till I tell you about that one. That's, that's, a, that's a beaut, but we'll yeah. get to that down the road. Yeah. Let's, let's listen to Charlie Munger. I want you to hear Charlie Munger again. We've been starting these off yeah. with Charlie. So we've listened to this five or six times now. Um, it's really long. It it's a minute. It's a whole minute. And he gives the four basic principles of investing, according to him and, and Warren Buffett. So yeah. he gives them really quickly here. We've already talked about the first two. And we're going to now, I think, talk about the third one. And the first one was you have to be, be capable, capable of, understanding. of understanding the business. Yep. Keyword the capable. The second one was <laughs> the second one is you have to have the intrinsic value the intrinsic you have to well intrinsic not intrinsic value intrinsic characteristics that's right you have to figure we'll out get the, to intrinsic value in yeah another that's a different one. thing yeah the intrinsic characteristics that create a durable competitive advantage exacto mundo <laughs> okay this is really good you're these are the keys right to really nailing it so let's hear charlie again this is we'll repeat those two and then we'll add a couple more. Here we go. Go, Charlie. We have to deal in things that we're capable of understanding. And then once we're over that filter, we have to have a business with some intrinsic characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage. And then, of course, we would vastly prefer a management in place with a lot of integrity and talent. And finally... No matter how wonderful it is, it's not worth an infinite price. So we have to have a price that makes sense and gives a margin of safety considering the natural vicissitudes of life. That's a very simple set of ideas. And the reason that our ideas have not spread faster is they're too simple. The professional classes can't justify their existence if that's all they have to say. I mean, it's all so obvious and so simple. What would they have to do with the rest of the semester? <laughs> she just makes me laugh every single time. <laughs> it's all so obvious and so simple. What would you do? And here we are in our, like several hours into this now. Absolutely. <laughs> We're just sort of feeling back the onion. Yeah. yeah. I think you could easily spend a lot of time on that. So it's actually there's another reason, you know, why the professors don't teach this stuff. And it isn't because it's so simple, although it is simple. Um, you know, what would they have to do? That's Charlie's sort of being, you know, hyperbolic there, I think, a bit. The reason is, is because they don't believe you can do it. They just don't believe you can do it. They don't believe people can beat the market. And There's no way that's true when there's people who beat the market. Oh, oh, au contraire. It is absolutely true. And in fact, there have been entire, I mean, entire careers made around the idea that you can't beat the market in academia. And they always have to deal with the Charlie Mungers of the world and the Warren Buffetts who just obviously slaughtered the market, not for once or twice or just a couple years. No, they beat it for 50, 60 years. Yeah, exactly. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. We're going we're, we're gonna to talk about that next time. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent Next tea up time. there, Dad. All right. Well done. Okay, now Never let's go. Mind. We're going to go play another game. Let's switch topics. Yeah.
So <laughs> I, I don't want to get to that ahead of this. Because Charlie's doing this in an order for a reason. It's like you're, you're yeah. entering this funnel. And at the top of the funnel is, are you capable of understanding this business that you're about to buy? Right. And then the next layer down is, hey, is this a really good business based on having intrinsic characteristics as the model of the business gives it a big moat, which makes it tough to compete with. And then the next, and if it's got that, then you're interested in, well, and who's running it? Can they screw up the moat in some way? And last time we talked a little bit about worrying about the CEOs might be mercenaries or something. And, right. you know, right. we're going to get into that now. I yeah, think it's time it, to get into I that. I think you're describing basically an inverted pyramid with the value, or the, uh, I want to say the values, but that's not quite right. The uh, the understanding of the company, which brings your values into it. Mm -hmm. And then the intrinsic characteristics, and then the management, and the last thing is the price, right? Right. Okay. Right. So the first three, which are understanding, then these intrinsic characteristics that give it a moat, a durable competitive advantage, and the management, those form, those three form what I think of as the three parts of your checklist to determine if it's a wonderful business. And that's something Charlie said. He used the word wonderful. That's right. Yeah. So that's what we're targeting is a wonderful business. And a wonderful business is, if you think about it simply, one that you understand, one that has this characteristic of a moat that's durable, and it has some talented uh, managers that have a lot of integrity. So let's talk about what that means in this world to have a lot of integrity. Um, because I think that that item is something that they let slip off the Harvard um, the Harvard you just course keep ragging list. on Harvard. They're the ones turning out these guys that are operating outside the boundaries of the big picture. And I don't say they're operating without integrity. Um, but what I would say is that they have forgotten Many, many of the people who are running these companies have forgotten that in capitalism, in, in a place of freedom, there is a role of responsibility. With, with freedom comes great responsibility. And what I see, you're laughing. Why are you laughing? Because it's just, isn't that from Star Wars? It is? Is that Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi? Which one is it? It's um, Yoda. It's Yoda. <laughs> oh, man, I need to be working on my Yoda accent. But or, just because Yoda said it doesn't make it tr un, not true. It doesn't make it untrue or true. It's just, it's part of the thing. It's part of Star Wars. And so we can say we don't know, uh, but we can explore if this is true. <laughs> and I think that it might be true. <laughs> I feel like this, that the people who, we use the word manager or management, Charlie just used those words, but we didn't use the word leadership. And I think that we sort of assume that the people who are managing these businesses are the leaders of the business. That may be a false assumption. So what when I'm looking at this on my checklist, and I know that what I'm looking for is a management team with a lot of integrity and talent, to quote Charlie, mm -hmm. I want to think of that in a certain kind of way. So if, if you'll grant me a minute, I want to jump into that about what do you mean by integrity? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So integrity is really sort of the idea that what you see is what you get. You know, you're an integrated human being that you're not presenting one picture to the outside, but you're something different on the inside. And on the basis of that definition, I would say we've got a lot of people running these companies who are not integrated. So can we just go back for a minute? Mm-hmm. You're talking about information that you have about people who are managing companies. Yeah. 
before we even discuss our opinion of that management style, where do you get information about these people? Well, the, it used to be it was really hard to get information. Um, you'd have to hope somebody interviewed them and really dug in, and it would be in the New York Times, it would be in the Wall Street Journal, it would be in the periodicals that we talked about early on mm -hmm. in terms of coming to understand this business. So the first step in understanding who's running a company, the management team, is understanding the industry they're in. That's why Charlie's got that up at the top. So if you don't have that in your canyon, if that's not part of your circle of competence, if it's not what you really understand, then it's very hard to judge the management team. But if it is, if you understand Chipotle Grill's industry, then you could have a better chance of understanding what this management team is doing because they are going to write about their industry in the 10Ks. They're going to talk about it in the quarterly earnings reports. And all of this is stuff you have access to as a, an investor that it was hard to get back in the old days. And you'd have to send away for the annual report and they would send it to you and you get it two weeks later. And, you know, so the time factor here has changed dramatically. I can now go online and read all I want to read about a company in a matter of just, you know, an hour or something to get an idea if I really am interested in that company. Yeah, it's easy to grab those reports off the SEC's website. Yeah, man. So you get immediately you get to see is the CEO explaining this industry the way I understand it? Because now I understand the industry, and here I'm listening to him talk about it, and it's may, may, like I, I was reading a report from um, the new CEO of Coach, which makes handbags, except that he's talking to me about some kind of new company he's creating. I'm like reading this, this report. This was in the, the 10K, in the 10K. another one? Yeah, in the 10K. I'm like, whoa, this guy's not leading a handbag company anymore. He's leading a, go, a global brand company now where he wants men's wear, watches, you know, baubles. I mean, he's taken on Michael Kors. He's taken on Ralph Lauren. He's going to do this huge thing, right? Well, Coach has been in business for like 50 or 60 years making handbags. And all of a sudden, they're going to be this other thing. That's a huge red flag to me. It doesn't say that the guy doesn't have integrity. It says, I don't know what business he's going in here. I don't understand that business. So I'm out of here. So when you start reading the 10Ks, you start to get a sense of what the CEO thinks the business is all about. That's one thing. Okay. Second thing is you have the annual letter from the CEO to the shareholders. Big deal. People just go, eh, you know, it's just boilerplate. Well, if it's just boilerplate, that tells me something about the CEO tells me he's not willing on a once a year basis to tell me as the owner of his company, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Where are his problems? Where are his, you know, the big audacious goal that he's got? You know, give me, give me some of that. These guys write these letters and they're like, our employees did really good this year and we achieved all of our goals and it was a tough year, but we made it. And it's just a bunch of blah. It doesn't tell you anything that you would need to judge the value of this business. Right? And when they write those kinds of letters, I always think they're doing it on purpose. If they're doing it on purpose, I think maybe they're you not being they're fully something? honest. Exactly. And if they're not doing it on purpose, I'm thinking, clueless. Yeah. Like, right. Be purposeful. Be purposeful. So here's an example of a letter that you should read to get an idea of what a letter should look like from a CEO. You go to Berkshire Hathaway online and Google... Just Google Berkshire Hathaway, go to the website, click on it, and you'll see um, the chairman letter, chairman's letters. Click on that link, 
and you'll get all the letters that Warren Buffett has written since like 1971. And just start reading them. Pick any one of them. And what you're going to see is a CEO who's completely open about the mistakes he's made in the last year that cost you money as an owner, the things he did right, the good people who are working, you know, the parts of the business that are doing well, the parts that are doing badly, what he... I mean, come on, man, it's a great letter. And why don't all the CEOs do that? Why not, you know? And it's, you know, partly because they just don't want to be held responsible. You know, I've seen letters from, like, I won't even mention the company, but a big Fortune 50 company, where the guy started writing the letters in, like, 2001, 2000, and he's telling about all the things he's going to do in his five-year plan, 2002, 2003, everything's going great, 2004, 2005, and all of a sudden, he's not talking about the five-year plan anymore. Oh. It was all going very good, and then six or seven years later, we still haven't talked about the five-year plan. He's just gone. Like it never happened. Like the shareholders are too stupid to realize that I have absolutely miscalculated where this company is going to be. I mean, that kind of stuff is, that to me, that's just acting without integrity. Okay? That is, it's not being intellectually honest. It's not saying, hey, here's something I've been talking about for the last four years. Here's what happened with it. It didn't go the way I thought it was going to. Yeah. So by contrast, Jenny Rometty at IBM was handed this really messy situation from her her predecessor at IBM who said who had already committed that IBM would be at $20 a share in 2015 she inherited his promise to the world and last year she said we're not going to do that so she acknowledged it acknowledged it and made a comment on it. This one is the way or wrong another. thing for this company to be doing. It's not right for our shareholders. It's putting false values on our team. We got everybody scrambling to make a false number when what we should be doing is building for the long run. I say, yeah, Ginny Rometty. That's <laughs> leadership right there. She had to take the heat. I mean, there are CEOs that would have been fired for that, but she's got mm. good people behind mm. her, like Buffett is behind her. And I think people are giving her a shot here. Well, and what you just said is a big reason that a lot of CEOs probably don't <laughs> you go. write the personal letter to the shareholders or don't acknowledge the failure of the five-year plan. There you go. They're easily fired. They're usually fired with something like that. And here's the, here's the problem with that, is that you want to ask yourself who's running the business and are they in it for themselves or are they in it for what I would call the stakeholders? What John Mackey gave me that word and I think it's a lovely word it's John Mackey runs Whole Foods and has a real concept of conscious capitalism and there's a book for you yeah conscious capitalism by John Mackey M-A-C-K-E-Y M-A-C-K-E-Y yeah, yeah. yeah um, conscious capitalism is about the idea that conscious business people people who are aware of the overall impact of them of their actions in the world conscious people right um are, can create the best of all possible worlds because with that freedom that comes with comes with great when you started off with comes with great responsibility is, is this responsibility to act to the benefit of not just one element of the world you know you don't act to the benefit of you for example if you're the CEO it's not just about you um, you don't act just for the benefit of the owners of the company. It's not just about the owners who are the shareholders. 
um, you don't act like GM was doing over a period of its life to the benefit of just the employees. It got into bed with the unions and it was like, hey, let's just go to the bank. And you end up with guys making 80 bucks an hour in a world where it's a 30 hour, $30 an hour world. And, and they end up with crashing the company. So you, you as a conscious CEO, just like a conscious leader of a family, you don't act just to your own benefit or the benefit of one child or the benefit, right? You've got to have the big picture of your family. What's going to take my family forward into the future? And that's missing. That sounds like the difference between leadership and management. Bingo, bingo. And they teach management at Harvard Business School. I bet you they have leadership classes, and I bet you they are just, I don't know, I shouldn't. Come on, Harvard, let's hear it. But <laughs> they definitely teach you to manage a company. But manage, and you know, sometimes the origin of a word gives you an idea about what it's really all about. And the origin of the word management is manacle, to lock up, to control. Really? Yeah. Pretty cool. Hmm. So check it out. Yeah, I'll uh, conversely add that sometimes you want more of a manager than you want a leader, depending on the situation in the organization. Um, I mean, Steve Jobs, amazing leader, generally considered not the best manager of people. Okay, uh, the last two words got me to agree, of people. Yeah, of people. Right, I, He's a great manager in terms of putting out the perfect product. Right, 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 right. And, I, and you know, I worked with Steve for a little bit and um, and had my rear end chewed off by him at one occasion. And I can tell you how rough he is uh, and how quick um, he could pull the trigger and be wrong. And he wouldn't back up from it, you know, just ignore it and go on. So very, very rough on, on, on people. Um, but like you said... The intensity that he had and his big, gigantic, huge, audacious goals that he was setting and his incredible focus and talent and, and consciousness on what a great product should look like, that drove that company. Absolutely. And it made people just suck it up. It's like being around Patton, you know, <laughs> and General Well, it's Patton. like you have to have a leader. Well, maybe I'm getting this wrong. I was just thinking, you have to have a leader, but do you really have to have a manager? But you probably do really have to have a manager. Well, you can hire managers. Yeah. You know? But you can't just have a manager without any leadership, without any direction. And that's often what we have, is we have managers, and they just manage these companies into the dirt. I mean, I think since 2000, we've had, I don't know, 100 or more of the Fortune 500 just go away get absorbed into other companies or whatever. So, and in fact, you know, the amount of companies that have lived for 100 years is a pretty short list. So clearly there's something about managing that causes ultimately the failure of that well, business. Well, it's not always, a, it's often not a failure for a company to be acquired. That's often an excellent outcome for a company. Okay, fair enough. And, it might, it, and it, maybe it's an excellent outcome for the company. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that in, uh, entirely would be, the, you know, not the case. So, but I'm just thinking of like, you know, how important it is to have someone that has a vision of where this company is going to go and can communicate that vision to the troops and get people fired up. And so one of the criteria that we have as a as sort of this Warren Buffett style investor is we love it when 
managers have a big audacious goal. They are they're charged up by something that they want to do to change the world. And um, and often it's to be the best in their industry, to change the industry, um, you know, to change the way consumers use products. That was Jobs' thing, you know, just like we're going to change the way people do things in their lives. Um, but we love that because what happens is the manager can communicate that vision, can get people to come to work who are the best people. I mean, mm-hmm. like who are willing to work 60 hours a week and just bust their butts to make this vision come true. I mean, people people want to work for something other than just money. Mm-hmm. That's not enough to drive you to work every day. Well, know? there are all those studies that show that, uh, not, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something like if you're making, let's I'm just making up these numbers, but if you make below 30000 a year, then you your happiness is increased dramatically by making more money than that. Like let's say you make 30,000 and you go up to 60,000. Your happiness increases hugely just mm. because of your change in money. Which makes total sense because that's a huge difference in living and lifestyle and yeah, your when, accessibility. When I went from $4,000 a year to like you know, 8,000. That was a big deal. That's a big deal. But once you get over a certain threshold and I don't remember what it was, but let's say it's like 80,000 your happiness really doesn't increase that much, no matter how much more money you make, until I think you probably get into, you know, some stratosphere numbers, when it really can make a difference in your lifestyle and where you live and what your family can do. That, that really is what changes your happiness level. Yeah. So, um, so that's right. People don't always, people do work for a certain amount of money. And then after that, it's about the hairy, audacious goal. It's about creating something. It's about doing something you're passionate about. It's about being creative at work with people you like. Like those are all the things that make people excited about working besides just money. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, we all want to work someplace where it matters. Exactly. I think we do. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I love that. I, I want to invest after a certain point. You know, after like we all point, have to have the, the right amount have, of money. Yeah. And then it's about those. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah. In other words. You know, I can have my heart in it and everything, but if you don't pay me enough, I'm going to starve, and so I can't be there. Yeah, exactly. Which is sad. I mean, I, I think that the key the key thing for, let's say, most people who have got a little bit to invest or they want to have a little bit to invest, is for as far as what we're talking about goes all the way back to the values thing that we started with, which is, hey, if this is kind of I think about this is kind of part of what I do, then tying my you know putting my money where my mouth is, where my values are, is a fabulous way to connect into what I'm doing and drives me forward with it. Just like a CEO who can create this vision can drive his organization forward. Like there's this uh, there's this road in uh, near Palo Alto near uh, Stanford called Sand Hill Road. And it's got a string of venture capital companies that have started up there, you know. And um, there's there's a hill up on the kind of the south side of Sand Hill Road. You can walk up on it. It's one of those sort of brown hills, you know, with uh, all the grass on it. And you get to the top of this thing, you're looking down to the north is these, you know, sort of like um, Mediterranean, Spanish-looking buildings that got all these venture capital. This is where so many amazing businesses have been funded from, right? So you're in this kind of historic place. And over there, kind of a little bit to the east is Stanford, which is freaking historic, and it's awesome to even see it. And then down the hill to the south is this beautiful ranch with like blackboard fencing and horses out there that are gorgeous and you know beautiful cars in the turnaround and there's a pool and it's just this gorgeous house gorgeous ranch like in palo alto right and there's this guy that took an engineer up to the top of that hill 
and to try to recruit him into his startup. This is like a fabled story? or this? Oh, is, this is a fabled story. This is somebody you know. No, this is a fabled story. And it says, like, it says, look, I, I want you to leave your company you're with. Come with me in this startup. I know it's risky for you, but come with me in this startup. And if you bust your butt, I mean, you work hard, you crank it hard, and we realize this vision, look down there. You see that ranch? All of that will be mine. <laughs> Which, to me, is this classic stupid thing that people do when they're running these companies is they forget that it's not about them. It's about the people that are there with you on this journey. And you're not going to get where you want to go. I mean, you could squeeze it, right? People can come on board a big company and squeeze it and choke it and get the benefit of that. And they do it all the time. I mean, the, the guy that took Albertsons down the tubes ended up walking away with $40 million. I mean, it's unbelievable. These guys put on golden, you know, you know what gold, like a golden parachute clauses are? Oh, yeah. Where, I mean, they basically set it up so if somebody takes over the company or the company gets sold, they just get a fortune. Mm -hmm. Who would give them that? I have to say, though, I find that story confusing because one of the classic hallmarks of startup work is that you get equity in the company. You might not get much, but you'll get a little bit, hopefully. And that's what helps startups attract great talent. Exactly. Without paying them much. The whole point of the story. Well, though your story was about how the guy who was the VC was the one who was going to make all the money, right? Yeah, which means there's no way he's going to get this guy on board. Oh, That's the whole point of the okay. story. So I thought the point was, ha, 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 then that happened. No, oh. no, the point was, moron, you're not going to get this engineer. Got it. You have got to give up some of that ranch. Right? Whatever is required to that get these guys. That makes much more sense. Yeah, yeah, much, okay. more, much more sense. <laughs> Dude, come on board here, and it's all mine. Okay. Yeah, okay. Happy to. <laughs> <laughs> Not likely. Not in Silicon Valley. And yet, that's the way CEOs operate a lot of public companies. Once they've gotten big, they think it can be their own little piggy bank. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, contrast between a startup and a very well-established public company, is that startups very consciously cannot exist without talented people coming in and making it happen. And that's why they give up part of their equity from founders to their employees and from VCs to employees um, to attract those people because the company just will not work without those people. And I think that's still true for a large publicly traded company, but it's ignored because there's so much money and it's been around for so long or or who knows why so it's just many, so complicated yeah, or so many they people have, have stakes they have and they don't give up of, any thousands of employees and yeah. they just are taken for granted in a sense yeah. there's some sense of that that is lost yeah. in between those stages that's a huge point i hadn't actually thought of it like that but that's obviously emerging corporations are your expertise and i it's just amazing to me now that you say it that of course startups operate on the basis of sharing equity and figuring out how we're going to partial this all out. Otherwise, you wouldn't get the best people. Absolutely. And yet, because they can't afford to pay them. They don't have enough money to pay them a market salary. So it's part of their compensation. Which might be part of what allows public companies to just pay people and they get people in. But don't you wonder if the best people aren't going to walk away? That's right, though. It's a different feeling. It's yeah. a different, you might be getting a larger salary at a larger company, but it's it's a, it's a lot, it's, to go back to your word, you don't have the same stake. You're not a stakeholder in the same way right. in that larger company. So 
so there's a couple of pieces here. First is, you know, think about think about the fact that you're looking for a CEO that has more than himself and his the shareholders' interests. He's looking at the employees. I, I want to see what John Mackey said. He said, I want a CEO, a conscious CEO, should have really passionate employees, passionate uh, uh, um, customers, partners with their suppliers. They're, they're in a partnership, not an adversarial relationship. Like Walmart's in an adversarial relationship with everybody, mm-hmm. trying to beat them down all the time. Let's make a partnership. Um, you've got trying to improve the environment that you're in, right? I mean, we walk around, we squish bugs, right? Maybe we should walk on air, but we don't. So you try to improve your environment. You try to um, have a community that embraces you being there and address the community issues. Um, so all of these and more are part of what a conscious CEO is is taking in and enveloping, you know, and and trying to balance all of this in a great way. And part of that is I think John Mackey does it so well at Whole Foods by having a mission that is so awesome. I mean, he, he states it every single letter you ever read about him. It's like whole people, whole earth, or sorry, whole food, whole people, whole earth. And the, if you sign on at Whole Foods, which is, by the way, rated one of the top companies to work for in the world, you sign on there, you better sign on to that agenda. In fact, you won't get a job at Whole Foods unless your team that you want to get on board with believes that you believe that passionately. And those people are evangelical about their whole mission down there. And I tell you something else. We just went, you and I just went down and ate at Chipotle, mm-hmm. right? Which is a company that has a mission. It's fast casual, and it has an idea of bringing in natural ingredients, natural mm-hmm. antibiotic-free meat, and meat that's walking around. It's not in a cage. So excited about. I am too, and it's it's the step they can take, right? And you know they'll take more in the future if they can because they're leading. That's that. right. I think that's really important what you just said. It's hard for a startup to do everything right from the very beginning and still grow and make money. Yeah. And so I think Chipotle has done a great job of doing what they can at each step along the way. I do too. And guess what? We're served by a guy who's behind the counter. And I say, hey, give me a double load of that guacamole right there, you know? And he puts it on. And I'm laughing because I love it. <laughs> and he starts laughing. I go, what are you doing? He goes, what did he say? Something like, I don't know. I just really enjoy watching you, you know? Yeah, like, he was. A, he was. He thought it was hilarious that you were so into the guacamole. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then he only charged you for one scoop, which was very nice. Did he really? Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. Okay, but don't say that on the air. So, <laughs> but he was. He was enjoying what he's doing there. Mm-hmm. That he's got customers who mm-hmm. are excited about what he's got to sell. And I love a company that's like that. I just think it's so critical that companies build on that basis, you know? So this is all kind of, you can read about this in Conscious Capitalism, what Mackey has to say, and I think I think it's worth pursuing if you're going to be an investor because it ties back into your values. And you don't have to have that set of values, but if you don't have a set of values, that's a good one to start with mm-hmm. right there. So that's kind of the stuff I look at. I look at, is this manager passionate about what they're doing? Um, are they leading from the point of view of a big audacious goal? Are they stakeholder oriented? And finally, do I think they're really telling me the truth? Are, are they an honest, you know, owner oriented guy? They're going to let me know what's really going on. And so we were talking about how do you figure that out? Right. Right. So we talked about the 10K, the 10 Qs. If you don't know what the 10 Qs are, these are quarterly reports that come out. And they're, the reading them is 
is important. You got to do that. But the key is every quarter, these CEOs come out and give an earnings report to analysts of public companies. And that is really interesting stuff. And all of those quarterly earning reports are, they're right on the company's website. They tell you what date it's going to be. Make a little note on your calendar to attend if you're going to be an owner or are you're Are you interested. talking about the call with the shareholders? Yeah, the call. Okay. And so the, the so report the, itself is just a report. Yeah. And then they also, along when it comes out, they usually have a call with shareholders. Exactly. Okay. Like they issue it out of that, that day and then that mm-hmm. afternoon they have a call. And um, the cool thing about this is typically the CEO gets on that quarterly report or earnings report and you're listening to the CEO explain to Wall Street, this is my favorite part, Wall Street MBAs from Harvard, Wharton, Princeton, smart, smart people who are trying to become ultimately either top-level analysts or, or their own hedge fund or their own mutual fund. So they're looking to you know demonstrate that they're knowledgeable about this business and try to find something about this business that someone hasn't explained, that they, they feel is a little bit of a gray area. And so the CEO gives this 30-minute report on what's going on. Typically, the CFO, chief financial officer, kicks in and explains the numbers. And then you get 30 minutes of Q&A. And man, you listen to those and you will start to hear about, you'll start to feel the character of the CEO. You'll hear him or her answer questions directly, completely, concisely, or wallow all over the place like you didn't understand the question. You'd be going like, whoa. This guy didn't understand that guy's question. Or he intentionally is obfuscating the issue, just completely throwing smoke. I mean, you know, you can hear it when somebody's just blowing smoke. And that would give you pause, right? So you actually listen to the tapes. Yeah, yeah. Listen to them. Do companies put them up on their websites or do you have to go to the SEC's website for that? No, you can. uh, The the companies almost always put it on their website. and you can also read the transcript on a website called Seeking Alpha. So if you miss it, um, you listen. You know, you can listen to it later, or you can scan the transcript. And if you see anything in there, you can go back and listen. But you should really listen to a few because that gives you an idea who the people are, whether you trust them or not. And ultimately, that's what it's coming down to. Charlie says, "I want a manager with a lot of integrity and talent." Um, why integrity? Because I want to trust that the guys telling me the truth, you know, the whole truth. So finding that out is a little bit of a process. You just listen to the 10Ks. Um, It helps if the people have got a track record, by the way. You can look up their bio. And if they've had, you know, one outstanding company after another, um, you know, chances are they're really a hotshot manager. And, you know, then you listen to the 10K, uh, or sorry, the 10Q reports yeah, and that's a good a point. Feeling. You could see what made them leave their previous company, how much they got paid to leave. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> you, you know, you get to see if people are leaving Home Depot and going to run Chrysler. You know, it's like, hmm, I wonder if that guy's a mercenary. Hmm. Or did he suddenly go from being absolutely all passionate about, you know, home supplies to, oh, suddenly passionate about automobiles. Could he just be a really great CEO who wanted a new challenge? Yeah, could be a really great CEO that wanted a new challenge. Um, but to me, it's a little bit <laughs> you're like... You're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're watching me roll my eyes a little bit because I'm just thinking, you know, it's like watching Steve Jobs, 
leave Apple and go to Ford. It's well, just such a huge step. It's a different, I don't know. I mean, Steve, Steve Jobs kind of goes from he, Apple to Next to Pixar. Yeah. All of which he started himself. Or jumped into. But there are very talented CEOs out there who are excellent at leading companies and I would think occasionally switch companies <laughs> without having started any of them. And you're kind of looking skeptical I'm, I'm about I'm trying that to idea. think. Put it like this. When Buffett buys a company, one of the things he's doing when he buys the entire company is he's buying the management team that's there. Because why? He doesn't want to run it. He doesn't want to have to take it over. A lot of people have the mistaken idea that Buffett has made uh, these much higher than market rates of return because he gets involved and, and changes the nature of the company because he's such a great business guy. Nothing could be farther from the truth. His nightmare is having to get involved. So what he's got, which is amazing, is a whole stable of multi-millionaire CEOs who are vastly rich, who are going to work every day because they're passionate about what they do. That's, that's really cool. So I would say the exception is the guy that's jumping from one industry to the next industry to the next industry because he's just this genius leader-manager guy or woman. That's, I don't know, you know, they, they have, the track record hasn't been all that wonderful. Hmm. I'm curious about that. I'd like to look into that a little right. bit. Come back and tell me what you think. On yeah. That I, I'm, sure. I'm curious because, again, in the startup world, I feel like I'm bringing this up a lot, but um, there are a lot of people who are excellent CEOs who are experts in taking a new company, which they did not start from an early stage, not from the very beginning, but from an early stage to an exit, to being sold or being um, or acquiring another company and turning into something else, or maybe going to an IPO, and um, and they'll go from company to company and do that, um, usually in the same industry. So those people are not mercenaries; they're excellent at what they do. Well, that doesn't make them not mercenaries. I mean, mercenaries can be very good at what they do. I'll rephrase: they're passionate. About there what we they go. do. Okay. See, here's what I think is that from what I've seen of these guys and and uh, and women that are doing this is that they um, have enormous number of opportunities presented to them once they've been successful with one. So they're ever more watchful for the thing that they can really turns them on because mm -hmm. they want to go to work mm -hmm. and have fun every day. Absolutely. They don't have to be working. Absolutely. They're loaded. Right. So those guys actually, they're sort of serial entrepreneurs serial entrepreneurial CEOs yeah. basically I, I don't count those the same as the guy that jumps from you know Home Depot to Chrysler I, that's not the same thing to me these guys are these guys are doing this because they love what they're doing they're passionate about mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. and um, and they're building something that they want right. to see in it's the world it's changing the world exactly exactly so I get excited about those those guys those, that's where I want my risky biz portfolio to land you know I want the next like we got into Google when is it 200 you know and it was certainly wasn't a 10-year-old company at that point in time. It had a few years of track record before it went public. But it, it was a blast. I really loved the, the, the resumes of the guys who were running it. I loved what they had to say. I loved their hiring practices. I loved how absolutely out of their minds intent they were on getting the best people in the door who all wanted to go where they wanted to go. You know, that kind of stuff is so fun to invest in, and, and it can have huge results, right? I mean, that company is now at, I think, 1100 bucks a share. It's, it, it's split, but, in, you know, split adjusted. Um, so 
the the idea that getting getting managers in the door who are also leaders and who are going to lead from this place of great passion uh, and bring in a team of people that are going to create something that's going to change the world. I love investing in something like that. That turns me on. Um, and and I think if you start to tie your own values into that and start to look for companies that are being led by people like that who are pushing the envelope to make a better world, uh, a world where we want to see for a world we want to see for our children twenty years or for you know where you're going to be in twenty years. That 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 makes investing so personal and so fun to do. It does make it personal. You feel personal about the companies you invest in. Yeah, I can tell. Yeah, I really do. I I feel like I need to defend them to you. Uh huh. Yeah. Because you and to anybody else. Yeah, but if I if I can defend them to you, I feel really good about them because you know you've got a really really high, real high quality set of values, and I think that if you you know, I, I always want you to be proud of what I've got money in. Oh, so sweet, Aww, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, look, we we should talk a minute about why all companies aren't run by people like that. So you need to understand real briefly how corporate CEOs are hired. So hmm. the structure of a public company. And is, I also want to ask. Sorry to oh, interrupt okay. you. I also want to ask you about the talent portion of what. Charlie said, because I think we just talked a lot about integrity. Right. But the talent part of it is hard to uh, determine or hard to figure out for somebody who's not in that world, who's just reading about it. Yep. So maybe that's something we could talk about in the next episode. Yeah. This podcast. Okay, because we could we can dive into that. I, I think the main thing about talent, let's, let's talk about it right now. Okay. I, the main thing about talent that Charlie's talking about is the is both this quality of leadership and the quality of management. So so what is the job of a CEO? If you boiled it down to what do you have to be really talented at to be a great CEO, and you can only say one thing of all the different characteristics of a great CEO, those guys would say the single most important job of a CEO is to allocate capital. Hmm. So it's kind of like you're the head of the family and you decide where to spend the limited amount of dollars you've got. Want to go on vacation? Should we buy a house? Should we get that other car, refrigerator? Should we invest? So allocation of capital is where are you going to put the money? And it comes down to a couple of real big decisions at any given point in time. One decision is, do we keep it or do we give it back to the people who own it, which means the shareholders? If we keep it, then we have to produce a high what? Return on equity. Ah, yeah. I learned something. Look at that. <laughs> so I'm going to look at this. My What these guys want is someone with the integrity to, to honestly make that decision rather than to do the things that are in their best interest, like get the Gulfstream jet. Right? Right. Every CEO would like to have a Gulfstream jet. So I don't want you to buy a Gulfstream jet. I would like to have jet. a Gulfstream jet. I'm just putting that into the world. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt. That's okay. That's okay. I like that. I didn't know that. Really? Oh, no. yeah? That's news to you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is, I, 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 can't, I still remember your fourth birthday where I took you to the Four Seasons. We went to the Five Seasons. Well, Dad. it was the Five Seasons. It was so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> For room service. In Des Moines. For room service. That's right. There we go. That was right then I knew. <laughs> so this uh, this idea that 
you have a manager and, and a CEO that's got integrity and talent. Integrity and talent around what? Well, the first thing is, do they allocate capital well? And so the, the answer to that is, what have they been doing? You know, if they're being promoted through the inside of the company, they're probably making some good decisions about how to allocate capital. Like over at Whole Foods, if you're just if you're running the produce department at Whole Foods at a single market, you have capital allocation responsibility. Hmm. That far down, they've pushed it, Mackey has pushed it that far down to his department heads are making capital allocation decisions. I mean, really like entrepreneurs. That's really extraordinary. Oh, man. In a company of that size, with it being so important in each market for things to be done properly. Yeah. That's really extraordinary. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. It's one of the really amazing, wonderful things about Whole Foods that makes it so profitable compared to most grocery stores is that they're, they've pushed those decisions on where to allocate capital down to such a low level that very little capital is wasted in that company. They have very high returns on equity as a result of that. So, well, and they charge a lot for their food. Well, they're getting to where they're getting rid of that, actually. Oh, yeah. The stuff that's apples to apples from them and other grocery stores, they're starting to charge the same stuff. They've, they've turned the corner on this. I have not noticed that. <laughs> no, I'm reading to you from the 10K. I hope he's not BSing me on me. That would be a the terrible thing. The flagship one in, Whole Fo- in Boulder is... Uh, Still got enough. I there. mean, I, you know, it's not horrible. It's not inexpensive. I would say, you know, it's about what I would expect to pay for excellent quality organic produce. Okay, there you go. Yeah. There you go. But, like, I think I was actually telling you a little while ago, I was, um, I stopped eating sweets. And so I've been buying a lot of raspberries because I like them and they're sweet. (laughs) And so I've become quite an expert on raspberry prices and raspberry quality. (laughs) And I went to Trader Joe's and bought their organic raspberries, which are about a dollar to two dollars cheaper than Whole Foods. And I was so excited, got my cheaper organic raspberries, took them home, and they were not very good. Oh. And they're the exact same brand as the ones at Whole Foods. They're the Driscoll's, whatever. Wow. And so then I went to Whole Foods and bought the more expensive ones, and they were so much better. Again, same brand. So Whole Foods is getting the better product from that supplier. Yep. And they, they obviously are paying them for that. Wow. That's a moat. Absolutely. Yeah. And so now I would rather not waste my, you know, couple dollars less on the. Tra- I mean, sorry. I'm sorry. I love Trader Joe's. I don't mean to put that one down at all. I love Trader Joe's, but um, the raspberries were better at Whole Foods. So I would I would rather pay a little more for that. I think that's that's huge, and that's a capital allocation decision that they decided they would go out there and create these relationships, and they built that into a real distribution. Yeah. Yeah. So, and some cool. people would rather, you know, aren't paying as much attention to their raspberry quality as I, I am. I pay a lot of attention. No, but some to people it. are not, and so they'll buy the ones at Trader Joe's. So it works out for everybody. Yeah, yeah. There are options. <laughs> I think options are good. Competitive yeah. markets are good. Yep. So, you've got these guys. Let's come back to the CEOs for a second. They're allocating capital. That's the first talent. And how would you know this person is good at this job, right? And the way you would know if they've just come on board is to look at their track record, where they've been. If they're in a public company and they're running this company, they've got some sort of track record that got them there. So you try to dig that out. That's not always very easy to find. So if we don't know for sure, then you'll notice that Charlie hedges a little on the management thing, a little different than everything else. I did notice that. Yeah. It's not as firm. He says... 
I would prefer yes. that management have integrity and yes. talent. But if he's got a management team that they're not so sure is great at allocating capital, but the company has this intrinsic characteristics that give it a vastly durable moat, what they say about it is so mean. They go, we want those intrinsic characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage to be so great that even an idiot can run this company <laughs> because someday an idiot will. Mm. And here's the thing. They end up buying into those companies oftentimes when an idiot is running them. Because why? Because that's when lower. it's the prices are lower. The guy's screwing it up. And they but Charlie and Warren and other guys like me were looking to see is the is the moat there? If this is a good moat, it will survive a bad management group. Hmm. And what's going to happen is the board is going to get a lot of pressure to get these guys out of there and move some good people in who know what they're doing. And that intrinsic value or that intrinsic characteristics of durable competitive advantage, those things carry the company. That's the critical thing. So Charlie's waffling slightly. I mean, they would prefer this, obviously. But oftentimes when you're buying something on sale, it's the management team that put it there. Oh, that's interesting. And they're yeah. going to be gone. Yeah, because if you're looking at a company that has all of these fantastic intrinsic characteristics of a durable competitive advantage, why would the price be low? <laughs> exactly. Somebody screwed it up. And, I mean, you get the new Coke, you get the Macondo well, you know, from BP and Halliburton and Rig and, and uh, Transocean. You, you get these things where somebody screwed it up and that becomes your opportunity to leap in there knowing that one of the first things that's going to happen is you're going to get a new management team hmm. and a company that has massive uh, durable competitive advantages. So when you've already decided that that company is in your canyon, it's, in, it's, it's where you are comfortable and that's kind of been on your watch list and you're like, boy, I sure would love to have a chance to get involved with Whole Foods. Um, and suddenly this company goes on sale, which we'll talk about next time, it's sometimes because the management team has either intentionally made a decision about how they're allocating capital, and boy, they ever mess up the, the stock analysts, and they put it on sale, or they unintentionally did it, and they kind of did the new Coke thing and just blew themselves up. One way or the other, there's been some kind of decision around the idea of allocation of capital that usually is what puts this is on sale. So... Uh, yeah, let's let's leave management at that one and then let's come back and take a look at how these three things, which create a kind of wonderfulness in a company. Let's go on to what Charlie says is, you know, we can't pay an infinite price. We want to pay a fair price for the company. Let's let's find out what he means by fair. And uh, that should be quite entertaining. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> All right. All right. So until next time, this is time to go play. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like us, please subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. You can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and get more information about how to invest on your own by going to ruleonepodcast.com. Everything we've discussed in this podcast is either Danielle's opinion or my opinion and is not to be taken as investment advice because... I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.